On today's Mental Health Comedy Podcast, comedian and writer Mike Rowe has a new book. My book title is It's a Funny Thing, but the subtitle is How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Ball. <laughs> and some old feelings. I, I never had any sort of anxiety issues at all during my entire stand-up career, which was like 1980 to 1990. And then I moved to LA to start writing on TV shows. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I started to really experience like career-related anxiety attacks. And interestingly, you know, I started having anxiety attacks when I was like 13 mm -hmm. and then learned how to deal with them in day-to-day -day life. And Jennifer teaches us how to get high on rejection. And you actually imagine that you kind of see a picture of this rejection. And then what you do is you imagine floating up above the picture. So that picture is just getting smaller and smaller and you're getting higher and higher and higher up until you're way up, like in outer space. Thrills, skills, and ills. And it all happens now. All right, everybody. Okay, this is it. There's no stopping now. Ain't no stopping us now. This is the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, my partner Jennifer Kalari, coming up in just a minute. She is a licensed therapist, and she does a tremendous amount of work helping all kinds of people all over the world. Her organization, her organization is called ConnectedParenting.com, just like it sounds, ConnectedParenting.com. We're going to make a lot of connections for you today. We have a great guest on the show. I, I've known this guy for a long time. And he has been a comic. He's been a writer. He's written for a lot of incredible shows. And he's written for a lot of animation, too, which is actually a, a really interesting field. He's written for, for Futurama and many other shows. But he's written for all kinds of great comics like Martin Short, many others, talk, variety, scripted. He has a new book out called It's a Funny Thing. But his name is Mike Rowe. And Mike... Originally a comic from New York, then came out to L.A. So we're going to talk about what it's like to be a comic and what it's like to manage the mental health of a comic. I wouldn't know anything about that because I don't have it. But that's okay. That's between me and my maker. So welcome to the show. We always like to welcome people no matter what emotional state you're in because it doesn't matter. Here, we're going to learn that mental health is a practice. It is not a topic. It is a practice. It's something that no one is an expert. Everybody, we're all children when it comes to mental health. We're all learning together. And we only have our mental health, our well-being is only as good as what we practice on a daily basis. Simple skills. Jennifer helps us with simple skills that anybody can use, tools that you can use in the moment, tools that you can use to rewire your brain, turn your brain around. Turn the beat around, turn your brain around. Have I had too much coffee? You bet I have. All right, here we go. Emotional shout-outs. If you confuse Celexa with Alexa and you ask your antidepressant to play Dynamite by Teo Cruz, welcome. If you breathe like you're wearing a scuba tank, which I do, welcome. If during your yoga class you get stuck in Warrior 2, that's Warrior 2, welcome. If you try to pay for therapy with an Amazon gift card, welcome, I've done that. If you play Name That Tune with family and keep guessing from a distance, or should I stay or should I go, welcome. 
If you wear a double mask to Trader Joe's and asphyxiate yourself in the mixed nuts section, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I want to bring in our friend from the North and from the South, Jennifer Kalari. And Jennifer, we're going to talk to a friend, a comedian, and something that people deal with a lot in comedy, rejection. I want to know if there are particular ways that you can that you can deal with rejection, whether you're a teenager and you're trying to ask somebody out, or whether you're a parent and you're going for a job, whether you're a parent and you're feeling rejected by your teen. How, how do you approach uh, rejection from a mental health standpoint? And the first thing I want to say is no matter how well balanced you are, no matter how in control you think you are of all of your emotions, rejection is an awful feeling. It's horrible, right? It's, it, nobody likes it. It's terrible. So what we talk about all the time, Ed, is before you run away from a feeling, turn towards it. Like let yourself just feel it and say rejection sucks. It doesn't feel great. This is, this is how my body's reacting to it. This is how I'm feeling inside and just sort of let yourself feel it. The more you try to run away from any feeling, the more it's going to chase you. Literally just turn into it. Um, just sink into it and let yourself feel it and allow yourself to be there for a few minutes. What happens with rejection is it kind of, you tap into this sort of underground river of rejection. So whenever you get rejected, it kind of is connected to every other type of rejection you've ever felt. And what's interesting about the brain is that long-term memories are not really, there's no hardware in the brain to store those memories until about the age of seven. So a lot of experiences that we have with rejection that our body is experiencing and remembering actually happened prior to seven. We might not even remember it, but our body does. So even just taking a second and realizing that it's not just this moment that you're feeling the rejection, you're feeling earlier experiences and earlier feelings that your body's had with rejection. That's why it feels so big. So the first step is actually move towards it and just take a second. After that, a technique that I think can work, and that often will do it, believe it or not, it sounds so silly, but you know, you immerse yourself in it, you get kind of over it, you get kind of bored of it, you let yourself, you let it sort of flow through you and then it's over with. A really neat technique that you can use, which I use all the time, after you've done that, you sort of experience this rejection, you feel awful about it, and you actually imagine that you are now kind of see a picture of this rejection, however you put that in a composite in your mind, you sort of freeze frame it like it's a little picture. And then what you do is you imagine floating up above the picture. So that picture is just getting smaller and smaller and you're getting higher and higher and higher up until you're way up, like in outer space, looking down at this tiny little minute thing that is this picture of you feeling rejection. And it's such a silly technique, but the brain thinks in metaphors and pictures. And all it needs to know is that you've moved away from that lion that's going to eat you. It doesn't care that it's your boss who didn't give you the promotion or that guy that said no when you wanted to get together. Like, it doesn't care. It just thinks something's going to jump at you and attack you. So if you can move yourself away from it, your anxiety will drop. And so these are little brain hacks that you can use to take yourself out of that fight or flight response which is what you're feeling when you feel rejected. Yeah, I like I like that because you know, you can you can visualize, you can get the picture and then as soon as you get the picture, you have the feelings that come up mm -hmm. and then you can position it. And that's just a good technique zooming in and zooming out. Mm -hmm. 
zooming out is such a great way perspective wise and and thinking about things that are enormous like how big the sky is or how many stars there are it's interesting to look at like broad facts about the universe because it puts everything into perspective so i love the uh, we'll call it the zoom out zooming out it's really great great technique I want to bring in our guest who I've known, I, God, I've got to know him for over, over 20 years, definitely over 20 years, because I'm in my 90s. I'm in my sunset years. Every comedian loves this guy and respects him. He's just, you know, he, he knows comedy and he knows what being funny is. And he has written a book about comedy and it's called It's a Funny Thing. Futurama, many shows many talented people he's worked with. He's he's written for the greats of comedy, and that's Mike Rowe. And Mike, welcome to the program. Have you been drinking? I will be after this, no doubt. Yes, no doubt. After we were through the uh, analysis. <laughs> no doubt. You started in New York, and I'm going to make you tell some stories because I have to do that. The first thing is you you grew up like loving comedy and not only did you grow up loving comedy but like Judd Apatow who's been on the show you actually reached out to comedians before you started doing stand up is that right Yes it's interesting too i mean you talk about sort of the psychology of family life and parenting and all that sort of thing and we were kind of our, our family was kind of stressful when i was a kid but the sort of interesting thing is the only time like there was solace in the family is when we were kind of around the TV watching sitcom. So the family was together and laughing. And, and then later I bonded too with my dad. We'd watch stand-up comics, old time comics on TV. So there was that comfort zone in that. So I've always had this idea of like, maybe that's a big reason why I did this. It's like, I'm chasing that comfort zone I had with my family, you know, and that acceptance from my dad. That said, to get to your story, um, one of the uh, big comedians that my dad and I bonded over was Rodney Dangerfield. And I was like an archivist. With I would do whatever I could to find comics on TV and get my little cassette recorder and record them and, and, and listen to the jokes and break them apart and, and put them back together and, you know, tell them to my friends. You know, I'm, I'm 15 telling my friends jokes about my lawyer and my divorce, you know. <laughs> so there was a moment on The Tonight Show when, when Dangerfield came on. Carson got him to talk for a moment, then be himself. And he opened up a little bit about when he, things were down and out, he was selling aluminum siding and trying to get gigs in the Catskill Mountains, but he went by the name of Jack Roy. And then he talked about a club he had in New York called Dangerfields. So my little, uh, my, my little comedy brain had an idea of like, I can use that information and get to Rodney. And since I know his jokes so well, since I've studied them so much, I'm going to get my mom's typewriter and type up a couple of Rodney Dangerfield jokes. Just make up some jokes and send them to Jack Roy at Dangerfield's. And I'm like, it's going to get his attention for sure. Sent them and weeks went by and then, you know, nothing, no word. I guess my first feeling of rejection, I go, okay. You know, I took a big swing. And, but then a couple weeks go by and then their phone rings and I'm in, you know, I'm 17 in the finished off bedroom basement, you know, and then my mom answers the phone and she's at the top of the stairs. She's, Mike, there's a Rodney on the phone for you. <laughs> I'm like, what? You know, my little kid, what, hello, hello. Hey, Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? I'm like, what the? 
Oh, well, yeah, I got your jokes. You know, they're pretty good. I like them. You know, they're good jokes. I can't use them. They're not for me, though, but they're good. So he, he liked me so much, he like kept me on the phone for 15 minutes, encouraging me, you could do this, you know? And I told him I wanted to do stand-up, and he told me about the, the showcase club, and he goes, but don't come to my club. It's no good. You know? <laughs> and then like a week later, he sent a handwritten letter saying, you, you're not going to be funny for eight years, so get ready. To, it's going to be a big fight, but, you know, <laughs> fight the good fight, you know? And as a kid, I'm like, well, if Rodney Dangerfield's encouraging me, then I, I, I got to do it. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just an, it, that early on to feel all those kind of emotions come together, you know, it was pretty fascinating. Incredible. Well, this is, uh, you know, I mean, you get, you get something that's important from, you know, that sense. And when you called it a comfort zone, and it really is that sense of when you're really being with a parent or being with a family member or just something that where you feel alive, as a kid, and it just gets to you. Like for me, it was listening to George Carlin's FM and AM, and I got it as a bar mitzvah present, and I can remember. But even before that, you know, I'd stay up and watch the Tonight Show when I was like six years old, and um, yeah. my parents were asleep, and I'm up watching Johnny and the panel, and that feeling of a family surrounding you. The panel felt like a family. the The other thing that I was thinking about is, didn't you hire a comedian for your father's birthday? Well. Uh, Henny Youngman was another comedian that my dad and I bonded over. So uh, on his 16th birthday, I hired Henny Youngman to show up at his party. And this is, you know, in some little town in the middle of Connecticut, you know, where if you see like the local weatherman cross the street, you're like, it's a big celebrity sighting. So you can imagine like a party in his basement with, you know, 50 of his friends and family. And as a surprise, Henny Youngman shows up. I don't know how many people at this point, sadly, not even sure who Henny Youngman is, but he was the, they call him the king of the one-liners, just quick, snappy, fast jokes, wore a loud jacket, played the violin between jokes, played it poorly. For example, like one of his stupid jokes, which is a great joke, is, you know, guy goes to the doctor, moves his arm, he goes, it hurts when I go like this. The doctor said, don't go like that. <laughs> so as an example of how it really was part of our family, as a kid, I didn't want to go to school and I was sort of pretending I was sick and my dad and I actually absolutely fell for it. He goes, he goes to me, he's moving his arm, he goes, Does it hurt when you go like this? And I go, Yeah. And he goes, Don't go like that. <laughs> yeah. So this becomes the way of communicating. This is the shorthand. I had that with my mom. And uh, my mother used to say, What you know, because I was talking all the time and if I would repeat something and it got a laugh, I would do it a hundred thousand times. And she would look at me and she'd say, Were you vaccinated with a phonograph needle? <laughs> My mother had a wit that was like really razor sharp. But so you hired him. But but wasn't it like these guys, they would, you know, you would think, well, Henny Youngman's a big time comedian at the time. He's not going to, you know, maybe as a manager or somebody like that. Didn't you call him directly? Well, uh, there's a comedy booker I knew who I was friends with who had it came out of a conversation. She said she had just hired him for someone's party. And I'm like, wait, you can just hire him? And she goes, yeah, I'll call him for you. And then, so we, I, we booked, I eventually talked to him on the phone. We set it up. And then I went back to the East Coast, uh, into New York City. And I was going to go the next day to my dad's party. And then, so when I got into New York, I got uh, Henny on the phone. And he goes, yeah, well, it'll, it'll be great, uh, uh, whatever. And it's, we don't have lunch tomorrow? I'm like, well, <laughs> yeah, lunch with Henny Youngman. 
And there we were at like Wolf's Deli on 57th Street. It was funny too, because uh, and this was before like uh, cell phones and, and caller ID and all that stuff. So he said, okay, we'll go, we'll go uh, tomorrow. We'll go at 12. And then I get up and I, I get to the phone. It's like 1145 and he answers the phone. Hello, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> He's waiting by the phone. Yeah. This is what, even after years of, of being a, you know, a successful comic, I mean, the older school guys would answer their own phone or they'd have an assistant, but the assistant would live in the house. Like Milton yeah. Berle had a, had an assistant who sat at a desk in his living room. It was a different, a different world, but tell very quickly, and then we're going to get back into mental health, but I have to do this for myself. Tell the story about Henny Youngman and the bird. The old time guys, especially someone like Kenny Youngman, were on, it's like an automatic pilot. I mean, you talk about brain wiring, just the jokes just come out automatically. I was far enough away across the street that I, because I walked by the Friars Club and I'm like, uh, oh my God, the Friars Club, I can't believe it. Then Henny Youngman walks out by himself and then a pigeon lands on the ground right next to him and he just looks down and goes, any mail for me? I just love it. I love it. It's fantastic. So then you start going into stand-up. What's your mental state? How are you taking care of yourself when you're a young comic? Like what's, and how does this, maybe there's something in your book that relates to this. Maybe you're writing about this, but what is the advice for young comics and what is the advice for, you know, how to manage your mental health while you're trying to, trying to learn this craft? Well, it's, this is the truth. I mean, the, my book title is, it's a funny thing. But the subtitle is How the Professional Comedy Business Made Me Fat and Bald, <laughs> which is an indication of the stress of it, you know, right. stress eating and losing your hair and all that sort of thing. But here's the thing, though, that's interesting. When I started as a stand-up and studied it and learned about it so much and read about it and ate stand-up, I knew that part of the process was rejection, right? So doing stand-up and getting rejected was like, this is great. I'm, I am on the ladder of what I'm supposed to do. Getting rejected is part of the checklist. In fact, the letter from Rodney Dangerfield is like, it took me eight years to find out what was funny about me. So I felt like I'm doing the right thing. So it's great. You know, I had no issues with it at all. And then as I kind of learned to craft and was really trying to find my voice and put it out there, you know, rejection hurts a little more because it's like, I'm showing you my soul. What, what do you mean you don't like it? You know? But the good thing about that, though, as a stand-up, and especially when I was doing it in the 80s in New York City, you could do a set and tank, and it's the worst set you had. Then you can get in a cab, and literally, you know, 30 minutes later, you're in front of a new audience, and then you're killing it, and it's fantastic, you know? It was almost like you have control over it. So I was rejected for that, but I'll go fix it. You know, how do you not how do you not go up and down, though? Because I would have sets, you know, if you're playing that's New York, you know, you're in the middle of a city, you're going from club to club, five spots in a night. But let's say you're at the improv and you're in Dallas and you're there for a week or you're there for two weeks. And now you went out in the middle of the week, the Wednesday show, you bombed so badly that like the waiters and waitresses were looking at each other, shaking their heads. I think it's you, you get to a point in a, your standup where you measure your consistency. So if I'm hitting, let's say just through the course of a year, if I'm hitting 80 whatever percent of the time, then if I don't do well, it's easier to blame them. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to deal with. 
but how much of it, Mike, and, and then I want to bring Jennifer into this, but how much of it is not what you say, but how you are on stage? Like, how are you emotionally? Are you confident? Are you, uh, you know, are you afraid? Are you insecure? Are you comfortable? Are you relaxed? What, what, how much of it is that? I got to the point where I was so comfortable on stage that I would bomb on purpose so I could see if I can get out of it. <laughs> right, right. Honestly. And what's interesting, even to this day, the most comfortable I feel as a person and the most outgoing I am as a person is when I'm on stage. It feels like that's probably the safest place for me. Well, David Feldman, our friend David Feldman, who's a great writer and a stand-up, he said that you're not, you know, you're not a comedian until you until you bomb thousands of times, until you bomb and you take a big steaming crap in front of the audience and then you bring them back. If you can do that, that's really the the mark of a comedian. Now that was, you know, I don't know that that's the only mark of a comedian, but what he would do is he would go out and he'd say, Ronald Reagan is the worst thing to happen in front of a Republican audience. Ronald Reagan's the worst thing to happen in the history of the United States. Boo! That's okay. Let him boo. Because we live in the greatest country in the world where you have the right to say anything you want. And that's called America. And then they'd start clapping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What was not so great about my capacity for all that was if it was bombing, for better or worse, I had these vocal impressions that were foolproof. And I would just win the audience back. I did this impression of the rock group Chicago. <laughs> Seriously, and I did this song 25 or 6 to 4 for 15 years where I do the drums. It was I was doing beatbox really before anybody was. So I was doing the drums and the horns and the bass line all at the same time coming out of my face. And in fact, I did it in Star Search 86 or whatever and one, you know, got a perfect score. That was sort of a bad crutch because if it wasn't going well, I know I could hit him with a sound and then I'd win him back. Where if you're doing jokes that aren't going well, the smarter comedian would go home and go, well, I should go home and write better jokes, <laughs> you know. With Jennifer, are you, when you hear this kind of thing, I mean, to me, a stand-up is vulnerable. A stand-up is, like is like a teenager going out on a date. Sure, yeah. And, and. If you were to talk to people who aren't, you know, everybody relates to this kind of a thing where you have to meet somebody new, whether it's a friend, whether it's a family member, what kind of, you know, what kind of advice or what kind of, how do you deal with this kind of cause I, emotion? Because I imagine that a lot of the teens that you see, a lot of the people that you see in, in their practice, there's fear, there's worry, there's concern about how they come across to other people in life. Yeah. Well, definitely. I mean, I certainly see social anxiety is probably one of the biggest growing types of anxiety that young people are facing. Part of that, I'm sure, is getting so dependent on screens and texting and Snapchatting that the real conversations are daunting. But but I want to come back to something that Mike was saying, because this is really the answer, right? And it's just it's not just the answer to how to handle rejection. It's everything. When you can look at the context so Mike, you were saying like in the beginning, you were, you were okay with rejection because you were on the ladder. You knew that that's what happened and you, you know, got that mentoring from, from Rodney and, and that's true in any field. Like I, I remember when I finished my MSW and I was ready to start seeing clients, I, I said to my supervisor, like, am I ready? Am I good? And she goes, oh, in five years, you'll be good. And in 10 years, you'll be excellent. And I'm thinking, what? What? 
but it was true. Like I had to make all kinds of mistakes. I had to figure it out on my own. Right. So that, that texture, those contours are part of what make you great at your craft, no matter what that is, whether it's a sport or anything. So the context is huge, right? It's, it's understanding that each failure, if you even want to call it that is part of the fabric of helping you get better and better at what you do. And that's, that's a growth mindset. Right. Uh, yeah, that brings up an interesting thing, though, too, that maybe you can help me understand. And I think it's really interesting because I, I, I never had any sort of anxiety issues at all t- during my entire stand-up career, which was like 1980 to 1990. And then I moved to L.A. to start writing on TV shows. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I started to really experience like career-related anxiety attacks. And interestingly, you know, I started having anxiety attacks when I was like 13 Mm -hmm. and then learned how to deal with them in day-to-day life, where to me, it's not even an issue anymore and just whatever regular day-to-day stuff would would come to me. But now, though, career-wise, I still have these crippling attacks, Mm -hmm. trying to think of like what triggers them. But it's What's interesting in this career is that I've worked on many different types of TV shows. So I can be on one series as a writer or EP or showrunner and be like the star of the room and knowing exactly what to do and how to wrangle everybody and how to, to get the, the actors to down to the record and do all that stuff. And I'm like a master at it. And then I can go to the very next show and everything shuts down like they don't think I'm funny. I can't, I can't find the groove. And then it starts to spiral into, I keep pitching new ideas and they look at me like I'm nuts. And then, uh, wait, that guy is doing great. And I can't figure it out. And, you know, and then I sit down to write a script and it like, it turns into, I can't even write a grocery list. You know, it's just a weird phenomenon. And I'm never sure if it's as simple as like, well, the show just doesn't fit in your your worldview of what's funny or the temperament of the people is, is triggering family stuff you know i i listen anxiety is a really tricky thing so we'll talk about anxiety in a second but can you just would you mind describing for people cuz i'm sure there are people listening who have felt this and it can feel so isolating and so alone what what does an anxiety attack feel like to you like what happens to you it's sort of a vague sort of dreamlike state Mm -hmm. you feel a little bit dizzy Mm -hmm. uh it's a little bit hard to breathe Mm -hmm. heart is pounding probably yes the 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 forehead gets hot Mm -hmm. i remember on one show where i just wasn't connecting and then they said you know that scene with the kid and the mom you know the kid shows up from school and you know he's home late can you write that scene and i like, had no information there was no characters weren't developed i went to my desk and i just stared i had to write two and a half pages and i'm like oh my god and at one point i ran out of the building almost blindly and i found like a bike leaning against the building from one of the crew guys or something and i just jumped on the <laughs> bike and just literally you talk about uh like, you know, fight and flight. I was just got on the bike and just like zipped as fast as I could going who knows where, you know. Jennifer, what's going on? And Mike, you can speak to this too. There are thoughts that are going on during these things. What are the thoughts? Because I know with me, I mean, look, I'm really funny in a room. I can be really funny in a writer's room. But if I'm not comfortable in the writer's room, and sometimes that's like earning 
your stripes, like you're a joke guy, Mike. I mean, I'm a joke guy. If I go in there and I don't start delivering, I start getting worried sometimes. And I and I will not be comfortable in a room with people that are funny that I'm very comfortable with those people. But what's going on in my head is I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. And what's going on in the body is something's going to attack me. I am in imminent, immediate danger. This is life or death. And what happens in those moments is your brain cannot tell the difference between feeling uncomfortable and feeling like you're losing it with this group and literally something that's about to attack you and eat you. So it literally shuts off the frontal lobe, which is the part of the brain that is makes up the jokes. It severs that part of the brain. And now you're literally a midbrain who is in fight, flight, or freeze. And Mike, you literally got on a bike and <laughs> run away, yeah. right? So part of it is being able to well, that's why I want to come back to like what your body is feeling because it can happen so fast. Like I bet you anything, you can go from feeling pretty good to like, holy crap in seconds, right? So Ed, you were asking about thoughts, but sometimes it's a very quick thought. And then before you know it, your body's absolutely taking it over. And Mike, what you were describing was disassociation. So people don't realize this is anxiety. You kind of feel like mm-hmm. you're floating, like you're asleep right. but awake. And it's like, whoa, it feels like your the perspective is sliding. And then it doesn't feel right and you start sweating and your heart stops. It's it's actually a really terrible feeling. And I'm sure a lot of people listening have, have had it. How long does it last for you? It's case by case. I mean, in, in the day-to-day stuff that's become completely manageable, is should I start to feel one, my brain can go, well, of course there's not a bobcat waiting for you in the hedges. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, oh, okay, I'm fine. But What's interesting about the writing thing, though, it does become sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, though, because there sort of is a bobcat that's there. Because like you're saying, if it shuts off your ability to make the jokes, then you are in trouble. You know what I mean? Then you do get fired and you go, oh, I'm going to get fired and I can't feed my family. And then I'm going to lose my wife and then the house is gone. Your life flashes before your eyes, literally. Yeah. Yeah. The, The key is, and this takes practice. And it's interesting because in certain settings, you're super comfortable and and you feel great. And I don't know whether it was something about moving to LA or being in such a different place. Sometimes it's something that happened so long ago, we've kind of forgotten, but our body remembers. The thing about anxiety that's so frustrating about it is it it's, tr- it's designed to save you, right? It's a self-preservatory emotion. It loves you. It just wants you to do well. So what it does is it screws you all up, basically, is what happens, right? So it'll take something that's happened. And so let's say, I don't know, blanking out in a writer's room or something. And then your brain starts to remember what the room looked like, who was in the room, the smell in the room, the coffee people were drinking, what you were wearing that day, what kind of weather was outside. It picks out every single piece of information because it thinks, okay, he almost died in this room. He almost died here. So we got to remember every single thing about it. So that if he's ever in this situation again, we're going to have him ready to get on that bike and run and drive down. And it's not even something we necessarily cognitively remember. It could be a series of things that the because it's called generalizing. And then before you know it, you were feeling fine. And then all of a sudden, you're feeling like that. So the biggest thing is what you've already talked about, to actually talk to your brain and literally say, there is no bobcat. This is not life or death. It's not right? So one of my favorite techniques, and I love this one, and I want you to try this. 
the, the midbrain is really dumb. Okay. The, the part of the brain that freaks out literally is just the security system. It's a tape recorder and it just plays back things that have happened. That's it. It's just happened to be a very powerful one that can shut off your frontal lobe, but it thinks in images and it thinks in pictures. It does not think in words or time or anything else. It doesn't care what's going to happen six months down the road. It just wants you to be surviving that particular situation. The first thing you have to do is you have to slow down your breathing. you got to literally drop your shoulder. Really simple trick that I teach all the time is just relax your tongue in the bottom of your mouth. Just let your tongue go kind of soft on your bottom teeth. That sends a signal to your body that you're not protecting those internal organs anymore. So something must be lightening up. Just kind of breathe a little bit. And then I want you to imagine basically a control panel in your brain. You can imagine it like in a sound booth or an airplane, something like that. And you literally have these switches, right? And you're saying to yourself, okay, I'm panicking. I'm freaking out. Can this kill me? Can I die in this moment? Well, no, I can't. So you hit the switch and then you're like, okay, what's the next thing? And you actually go down the line, right? Asking yourself these questions. You're slowly switching off. Uh, Can I get fired right now? Is somebody going to walk in right now and fire me? Well, no, not right now. That switch goes off. And you're basically imagining switching off all of these switches. These are all just basically brain hacks. As you're switching off the switches, your brain is actually going to come back online. You're going to calm down and you're going to be able to access to part of your brain that's full of creative and creative ideas and phenomenal, you know, directions that you want to go. You've had so much success already. It's there. It's not gone anywhere. And then the other thing that I think is really important, people who are really good at what they do are have imposter syndrome. They just worry that somebody's going to find out it was all fake or, you know, I, I still like worry that that's going to happen to me. Right. But, so people who are really good at their craft and they're really good at what they do tend to constantly feel that way. Right. And it, it's you, the, the people who are, you know, not usually that great think they're amazing at it. <laughs> the ones who think they're not are amazing at it. So it's part of that dynamic as well. But I would try the breathing. I would try going through the switches that you're not actually in danger and see if you can cool the system that way. And it can work really, really quickly. And and the more you use it, the better it works. What's kind of, I guess, frustrating about this business, in truth, there are situations where literally, if I've seen situations where if someone pitches like three bad things in a day, Mm -hmm. their job is on the line that day. Mm Mm-hmm. So that, and that might be the difference because I'm trying to understand the difference between like being a stand-up and being like, even though it's impossible, it should be the worst social anxiety situation. And it never was for me. I think part of it though, too, is not having control. In other words, like if, if, it, if I'm in a, in a show where I'm just not clicking, it's not like a stand-up gig where I can get in a cab and go to another show. Right. You know what I mean? I, I look up at the board and I'm like, oh my God, there's 22 more episodes. And Jennifer, I'll say the dynamic of a writer's room is like a family Mm -hmm. and everybody plays a role in the family. There are very defined roles. They're not prescribed. Like nobody says these are the roles. But everybody fills them. Yeah. But everybody fills them. There's Mm -hmm. the, there's the joke person. There's the gatekeeper. There's somebody who tries to calm everybody down. There's somebody who's afraid of conflict. You know, there's all these kinds of roles that you would play in a family and they're Mm -hmm. psychological, psychologically charged but you have to deliver funny things. So I would say if you really wanted to simulate a new kind of therapy, you'd go into a writer's room 
and you'd simulate that and you'd act it out because it's very charged. Yeah. Well, you know what it is? It is, uh, you know, a, a, a stressful family at the dinner table. Yeah. yeah. And you're at the dinner table, you know, 10 hours a day. And trying to get attention. And, and then there's somebody running it. There's somebody running the room. And based on their feeling, like if you're really good, and there aren't a lot of good ones, but there are some, I've had really good ones and really bad ones. People right. who say things to you like, shh, 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 shut up, shut up. Wow. I've had that. And then I've had, that's great, Ed. Let's hold on to that because we may need it later. Good. Where are we going? Right. So it's, you're talking about like some rooms, there's emotional safety, psychological safety. And in some rooms, there's none. Right? So, right. But if you're talking, it's interesting because as you're talking about family stuff, we were talking about anxiety being this kind of net that just collects everything. It's going to take you psychologically back to horrible family dinners and nasty older brothers and mean uncles. Like all that is going to be alive in that writer's room at the same time. That's, that's how all of us kind of operate, right? It's all intersubjective. We experience life through our own successes and failures and family history and trauma and all of that stuff. It's humans are so messy. I think that's what it is, Mike, because the stakes are just, it's just more immediate and higher. Right? right. And that's just, yeah. Yeah. So then what I would suggest, I mean, I would still do that in the moment. It's just, you, you would flicker around the switches. Ed and I talk all the time about the power of imagination and the ability to mm-hmm. imagineer your life. This to me sounds like the time where you would just basically I don't know, every night before you go to sleep as much as you can and as in a detailed way as you possibly can with all of the sounds and the energy and the noises and the feeling. Imagine yourself just killing it in that room and see the looks on everyone's faces and walk out of that room and feel exactly how you're going to feel and live it and breathe it until your limbic system believes it, until the midbrain believes it. Because again, these are all brain hacks. If you can trick your brain into thinking you've done this, it's already happened, you've done well, and you'll always do well, then the brain stops putting that in the category of immediate danger because it is, oh, okay, he's done that already. It it sounds so ridiculous. We're starting to see more and more now how using the imagination tricks the midbrain. Mm-hmm. Be an imagineer, and it will help you navigate the emotional roller coaster. <laughs> Everything comes down to Disney at one point or another, but we all have the theme park in our heads. And it's like, if you can imagine it being different and opening it up and imagine feeling the way you want to feel now, you can go through anything. But, you know, it goes a long way. Otherwise, it is an emotional roller coaster. You're at the whim of, you know, how people respond to what you say. Right. And that, but I think, I think she's exactly right though, because I think what's happening too in, in the family dynamic of being at that dinner table, but being the writer's room, for me, it's when it becomes that I become the eight year old kid. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's how I'm dealing with it as a kid. And the kid doesn't know what to do, you know? Yeah. So you have to say, you have to relate to the eight year old kid through your imagination or how you would talk to that kid and actually reassure that kid of the reassurance that maybe he didn't have at eight. You know, it's funny to say this because it seems really ridiculous, but it's actually not. We need mantras and safe words. Mm. You need like cues that you would almost give to a comic or give to a host. You need a cue. And the cue says safe, I'm safe, or it could be a word or it could be something else. But it lets you know that you are okay in that moment and you don't have to panic. 
You have choices. Is it ever a situation where it's impossible and there's even no matter how much you figure out how to work around it, there's a certain toxicity or something in the, in the, in the environment that you just not get out of it? If you're in a toxic environment, if there's an emotionally unsafe, psychologically damaging environment, and people find themselves in all the different professions in those settings, you need to take care of yourself and you need to leave. Yeah. If it's a, if it's a relatively kind of normal situation and your brain is making it into this thing, because it's so interesting what you said, Mike, because you turn into that eight-year-old. We all turn into that eight-year-old. Because remember that programming for long-term memories isn't even laid down until seven or eight. So we're all walking around as adults with seven-year-old and eight-year-old programming. Right. Even just recognizing, okay, this is a program. I'm tapping into the program where, uh, you know, I'm I'm back in my family dinners and my dad's saying this or my brother's saying that. So even just doing that can actually pull you out of that scenario. Yeah. We have to understand that our creation of our reality and how we see things and how we perceive things is so much more powerful. And if you believe it's impossible, then it's going to be impossible. Right. If you believe it's doable, it's doable. And the other strategy I would suggest for you, and I think the whole world should know, but this is tapping. EFT. It's a miracle. I, I like uh, Nick Ortner's work. He has the tappingsolution.com. Yeah. Or you can go to the tapping solution app. And there's a free app. Yeah. Brilliant. And it's free and it takes 30 seconds to do it. And it works just as well as popping an out of end with no negative side side effects. And I would do that before every, maybe two or three rounds of that before every meeting. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good one. Tapping is a good one because it makes it physical and it's actually, you're, you're, you are adjusting things and then you have, it brings up all of the discomfort, all of the, uh, all of the fear, all of the fight or flight stuff. And then you have a, you have a response to it and you're actually tapping yourself. So if you don't know about tapping, honestly, God, give that give that uh, that website address again, Jennifer. Tappingsolution.com. Before we leave, we're going to leave in a minute here, but Mike, I just wanted to run down a couple quick things and it'll show you, you know, you can answer comedically or, you know, just a realistic thing of what you do. These are situations that would come up in a comedy club. Hello. Situations. That, hello. Good morning. Look out. How are you? Hello. Front, front desk. Mm-hmm. Hello. Uh, here we go. This is sort of like a bombing awareness kit. Someone is talking in a normal voice, having a conversation in the front row while you're on stage. Yes. What do you do? I call my mom and tell her to show up and take me home. <laughs> yep, that's true. That's a, that's the right answer. Is that no? That's the number one answer here. I said okay. Drunk woman yells out, "Say something funny!" I say, "Mom, sit down." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Waiters and waitresses are dropping checks as you hit the stage. Why do you got to bring foreign people into this? <laughs> okay. <laughs> a, a, a friend wants to talk with you just before you go on. <laughs> happened to me a million times. I say, mom, sit down. No. Uh, <laughs> okay. down go sit down with the checks. People are yeah. throwing, dropping them. Go help exactly. them. A club owner asks you to do 14 birthday announcements and a tribute to his cousin. I say, can this count off of my time? So then I only have to do two minutes. Yeah, exactly. You do, you're in Texas at a club and you're doing your anti-gun material and the audience starts booing. I say, be careful, it's a two-shot minimum. 
Okay. Um, Sounds like we rehearsed these, didn't it? No, well, I knew you would know. You, you start making fun of the clan, and the audience starts booing because they think you're endorsing the clan. Do I get paid by the door, or is it a flat fee? <laughs> it's a flat fee. Okay. It's, uh, it's the sheet hitting the fan. I see. Okay, so the, the audience has just arrived from a China junket, and no one speaks English. Here's a little impression called the rock group Chicago. <laughs> you always have a bit that covers it. Yes, you have a bomb-proof bit. We have to talk more, but tell them where they can get the book. The book is on Amazon. It's on uh, at my publisher's website, bearmannermedia.com. And it's okay. supposed to be at Barnes & Noble online. Okay. Or you can come by my house and I'll sign it for 20 bucks. Okay, and it's called It's a Funny Thing. How the professional comedy business made me fat and bald. I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, Mike, it's been a pleasure. And you're going to come back. You'll come back. We have a lot more to talk about. Jennifer, thank you yes, so thank much. You. You're welcome. You're welcome. We have taken you into the writer's room. I think we're, we're doing a new kind of therapy called writer's room therapy. I love can... it. Mm-hmm. Mike, will you let us know, too, how it goes? Try the techniques. Let us know. Yeah, yeah, I will. Perfect. Sure. I want to thank you folks uh, for listening. You folks, I'm getting very folksy, for listening to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And you can get us wherever you subscribe to your podcast, any service, Amazon, Apple, iTunes, whatever it is, you can get it. Uh, you can find out about us on our social pages, on Facebook and Instagram. I want you to take good care of yourselves. I want to thank Jennifer Kalari and Mike Rowe. And keep coming back at Works If You Work It. I'm Ed Krasnick. Have a great week.